in Romans chapter 13, uh, verse 8 to the end. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Well, there's a lot happening in this passage, but I want us to notice that there is a fair bit of tension, to be sure. You see, Paul is setting up this passage this morning with something that he is saying to us we owe. There are things that we owe. Now, that language showed up last week, didn't it? Verse 7 of our passage last week, pay to all what is owed. And I said this last week, but I'll say it again. Verse 7 is actually, it's actually a command. Pay to all what is owed. And it's phrased as if there is a fairly significant debt and that the payment of that debt ought to happen. And then what Paul does in verse 7, he states uh, four things that are owed. And those four things that he states, he actually doubles them up. He says each of the four things Twice, taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And there's actually, uh, this is a little bit funny, a memorable quality in these doubling up of words, is, of words such, such that taxes and revenue kind of go together. And respect and honor, they go together. There's, there's a similarity of sound such that Paul, he's really saying something that's a bit hard to hear. Pay what you owe. But he's saying it in a very melodic way. So the word for taxes is pharos, and the word for revenue here in this passage is the word telos. Pharos and telos. And then respect and honor are phobos and timae. Phobos and timae. So Paul seems to be bouncing back and forth between a, a word that begins with P-H and a word that begins with T. And he does it again, a word that begins with P-H and a word that begins with T. And he's saying something in a very uh, melodic way, but the something that he is saying is actually rather hard to hear. Pay my taxes, really, and my revenue, respect and honor. These are debts of mine, Paul says. These are things that I owe. I hope that you felt last week that verse 7 ended with a, a little bit of a bad taste in your mouth. Taxes and revenue, pay them. And not only that, respect and honor, pay those things too. And it's almost as if in verse 7, Paul is winding up a rubber band. 
And then in verse 8, he actually releases the tension of that rubber band because how does verse 8 begin? It begins with these three small words in the Greek that really say, Oh, nobody, nothing. He's just told us to to owe, to pay uh, these four things, and he stated each of the four things uh, beautifully and repetitively. And now, right here in verse 8, the tension is released, and he says, owe nobody anything. Well, but I thought you just said I owe some things. And just as Paul commands in verse 7, pay all that is owed, uh, here in verse 8, he commands, owe nobody anything. And the tension is is released, so to speak. In verse 8, he uses the word uh, all. And in uh, verse 9, he uses the word uh, nobody. Uh, It's it's really remarkable. Uh, Oh, nobody, anything. Well, what's Paul doing here as he releases this tension of paying our taxes? He's going to describe to us a different kind of obligation. The kind of obligation that is ongoing... But what Paul is saying here is he's saying in this passage uh, altogether that the Christian has an obligation not merely to pay taxes and revenue and not merely to pay respect and honor to governing authorities, but the Christian's obligation is to love others and to walk properly before God. To love others and walk properly before God. And that's, that's how this sermon is outlined. Verses uh, 8 through 10, the Christian is obligated to love others. We've said a few things about how Paul sets this passage up. But looking again at Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, uh, in those verses, Paul is describing the kind of debt that is owed to governing authorities. Romans 13, verse 1. He says that we're obligated to not just pay uh, those governing authorities uh, taxes, but also any additional revenue that the governing authorities might exact from us. Uh, Furthermore, we are to pay those same governing authorities respect and honor. Now, we can only assume that we don't do this based upon how well our governing authorities are ruling. The Roman Christians are to, uh, as it were, render to Emperor Nero the things that belong to Emperor Nero. And Jesus, he commanded his disciples to render to Emperor Tiberius those things that belong to Emperor Tiberius. And in neither of these instances is there a qualification that the, that the governing authority needs to be of a certain measure. The obligation has nothing to do with that. But the obligation does have everything to do with the true governing authority, King Jesus. And so that's why Paul says in Romans 13, verse 1, that all governing authorities exist only because they have been instituted by God. And so... We owe them taxes, revenue, respect, and honor. And then here we come to verse 8. And he says, owe no one anything. This is really another way for Paul to say, don't let your debts go unpaid. In a rather sly way, Paul is encouraging these Roman Christians to get their debts paid to such a degree that they actually owe zero. Pay your debt of taxes, pay your debt of revenue and respect and honor. But if you look closely at verse 8, there is one debt in particular, the debt in which Paul seems to release all of the tension upon, a debt that is not paid and in fact will never be fully paid. A debt that continues. A debt that carries the Christian forward. Owe no one anything except to love each 
other. Now, I don't know if you have already made a choice between the debts that you would rather pay. Would you rather pay your taxes or would you rather pay uh, loving each other? But just as Paul stated twice taxes and revenue and respect and honor, notice in verse 8 that he states love twice as well. He's going to state it more. And this is a very clever transition here in verse 8. Paul begins with a a debt to governing authorities that's summarized by money, respect, and honor, and then he moves on to another kind of debt. And just as taxes, respect, and honor must be paid, so too must love for others be paid. Now, I want us to spend a little bit of time here, and I want us to uh, pull out four significant things about this command to owe love to others. Uh, This command begins in verse 8, but it continues on through verse 10. In fact, uh, verse uh, 8 and verse 10 seem to be pairs. They are stating the same thing in slightly different ways. But I want us to make sure that we notice four things about this command to pay the debt of love for others. And the first thing is this. The command to owe love does not reach completion like the command to owe taxes. And what's meant by that is simply this, the command to owe love, it's, it's actually ongoing. You see, once your taxes are paid, they're paid. And then once respect and honor are shown, well, it seems to be that it's time to, to move on. It could be that the tax year is over, that the bill has been paid, or, or the governing authority uh, has moved on, the governing authority has died. So it seems very much that the the taxes and even the honor and respect seem to be uh, tied up in that object of the governing authority. But look at the command to owe love in verse 9. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to come back to this later, but just as you care for your own needs in an ongoing way, so too are you to care for the needs of others in an ongoing way. It's this This love, this love that you owe, paying uh, as a debt, it actually goes on and on. You know, we may uh, look in this passage for evidence that my uh, loving someone is fulfilled quickly. You know, we might uh, think, uh, as we see in verse 8, one who loves another has fulfilled the law as being evidence that I'm supposed to simply love once. And when I have done that, I've actually fulfilled the law, and I no longer need to love others. Now, I know that that sounds ridiculous. I mean, verse 8, that has fulfilled, reads like it's in the past tense. But look at verse 10. Love is the continued fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. So we're commanded to be constantly paying against the debt of loving others. The command does not seem to reach completion. It's ongoing. That's the first thing that we should notice about the command to owe love. The second is this. The command to owe love is not directed to governing authorities, but to the church body and to anyone with whom we come into contact. Now, this is very important. This, uh, this command to owe love, who is it directed towards? Romans 13.1 is so clear, governing authorities. It's a lot less clear here. 
One commentator looks at a very specific phrase that shows up in our passage in verse 8. You see in verse 8, love each other. Love each other. And that that, uh, phrase, each other, in the Greek is one single word. And the Apostle Paul, this commentator notices, uses that expression 40 times. And 36 of the 40 times, Paul uses this expression to capture the relationship between believers. Love each other, well, this commentator says, first and foremost refers to believers. That's the other. It's very likely, then, that right here in chapter 13, Paul is referring to the same body of people he's referring to in Romans chapter 12. Do you remember what Romans chapter 12 is about? In chapter 12, Christians are to be marked with a special kind of love for one another as a church body. That is, Christians are to use their gifts and abilities not for themselves, but for others in the church body. And similarly, rather than living self-centered lives, they are to have a brotherly affection for one another in the church body. And Paul goes on in Romans 12, they are to race to show honor to others. They are to contribute to the needs of the saints. They are to associate with the lowly. They are to live peaceably with all. They are to never avenge themselves. And in this way, the church, the society of people that functions this way, the church as it's filled with believers who are loving one another, caring for one another, The church ends up becoming a a powerful picture of gospel transformation, not just in the lives of individuals, but also in the life of the church body as a whole. By God's grace, the church becomes this beautiful society uh, in which uh, God's people love one another and they become a picture of a society that can be had by others through Jesus Christ. So while that's true... That what we have here is we have Paul saying that this command to love is a command that is owed uh, first to believers in the church. We shouldn't stop there. Paul seems to be opening the door quite a bit more widely than that. The church is not to be completely isolated from the world. Paul quotes Leviticus 19.18, and we heard it read earlier in the service. Uh, He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And this has always been understood as an application not merely to the covenant community of Hebrew people, but to others as well. Uh, Using this Hebrew expression, this is actually our care for strangers, outsiders, In fact, in verse 10, you can see it in front of you. Paul affirms this when he says that love does no wrong to a neighbor. He's not saying just do no wrong. He is implying that we're actually to be the kind of people who do good for our neighbors. Now, what's a neighbor? A question has been asked of Jesus before. You'll recall in Luke chapter 10, that question was posed. And in Luke chapter 10, Jesus teaches a very prickly lawyer, one who has Leviticus 19.18 actually memorized. Jesus teaches that particular man, and he's teaching us, that his neighbor may very well be someone whom he greatly dislikes. And our neighbor may very well be someone whom we greatly dislike. For that lawyer, it was a Samaritan. Who is it for you and for me? Just like some people in the church are hard to love. Did I just admit that? 
I did. Just like some people in the church are are harder to love than others. Well, some people outside of the church body, our neighbors, some of them are harder to love than others. But let's pause here. Is Paul really saying that there is an overlap that we have between our love for fellow believers and our love for an acquaintance who is outside the church and who doesn't himself or herself profess faith in Jesus Christ? Is there an overlap? Well, yes, indeed. In fact, sometimes the church community is an example of love that's experienced by watching. Do you know what I mean by that? Sometimes the church body is an example of love that's experienced simply by watching outsiders watch the church body and see how the church body functions. And they think there's, there's something special there. We hope that they think that there is something special there. Now, Jesus says to his disciples that their love for one another is itself a testimony to those who are outside watching how those saints function together. Sometimes... The church community is an example of love that is experienced outside of the church body by folks watching the church body. But sometimes, sometimes the church community is an example of love that is experienced not at a distance, but is experienced personally. When a believer reaches outside the community of saints to offer to a neighbor outside the community of saints exactly the same kind of love that they offer to a brother or a sister in Christ. You see what Paul's doing here. It's an obligation with quite some scope. And so this love, this uh, obligation to love, it's ongoing, uh, and it's also for the church and for others. But the third thing is this, this command to owe love. It's manifested in a very specific way, in obedience to the moral law. In obedience to the moral law. Now, this is very important because Paul, he doesn't allow us, does he, to define what love is. I mean, isn't love something that feels good to me? Perhaps. Well, isn't love something that feels good to someone else? Yes, perhaps. But the ongoing love that we uh, are obligated for the saints and for others, Paul tells us, is a specific kind of love that's circumscribed by God's moral law. Now, by law, we mean exactly what Paul means here. He's very clear that those six of the Ten Commandments that are particularly focused on our horizontal relationships, you've heard that division before, haven't you? Two tables of the Ten Commandments, the first table, Commandments 1 through 4, defining our vertical relationship with God, and then the the last six commandments, the second table of the Ten Commandments, uh, that uh, pinches upon our horizontal relationships. And it's those last six that Paul seems to be focusing upon here, those relating to our horizontal relationships. And so he quotes the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The sixth, you shall not murder. The eighth, you shall not steal. The tenth, you shall not covet. But he says in verse nine, and any other commandments by which he includes also the fifth commandment, honoring your parents and the ninth commandment, not bearing false witness against your neighbor. Now notice this. Love is not merely, don't be mean. Love isn't merely, don't be evil. Love is an external expression of God's own character in and through our lives. As Christians, we love God's law. We meditate upon God's law. We seek to walk according to that law. 
I think that oftentimes Christians are so frightened of legalism that they fail to do what they ought to do, and that is to love the law of God. Now, I know that you uh, sense this as well, but let me say uh, in advance of next week that next week we'll be looking at Romans chapter 14, and Romans chapter 14 has much to say about moralism and legalism in the life of the church. Let's wait for Paul to teach us. But for now, let's notice what he's saying, that we are to be a people who, as Christian people, walk according to God's holy law, not as a basis for salvation, but we certainly don't ignore his law. The Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, is to become a litmus test of our love for others. That's what Paul is saying. Do you uh, know what Sunday school used to consist of in the history of the church? Maybe you don't know. What we normally think of as Sunday school probably began in the 18th century in uh, England under the ministry of Robert Rakes. That's generally uh, what scholars think of when they think of the, the history of the Sunday school movement in Protestantism. And what Robert Rakes was doing in Gloucester, England, is he was uh, taking a catechetical training, training of catechisms, and he was uh, merging that to uh, uh, training uh, how to read, uh, a literacy uh, program, and it caught on, and, and he has become known as the father of uh, the Sunday school movement. But if we're really honest, the oldest curriculum for Sunday school in the history of the church is actually quite different from that. J.I. Packer makes this very clear in a nice little book on sanctification called Growing in Christ. And he makes an argument in the introduction of that book that the church has for a long time seen the three sources of what their Sunday school education would look like. It would be training on the Apostles' Creed, training on the Lord's Prayer, and training on the Ten Commandments. It's actually a rich heritage of Christians loving the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments teach us not merely what not to do, but they also teach us what to do. For instance, the Sixth Commandment isn't just about not murdering someone. There are other scriptures that that fill in what that commandment is about. Scripture tells us certainly not to murder someone. But Scripture tells us that it's also about not hating others. It's about avoiding vengefulness, refusing to quarrel with and to provoke others. Not only this, the sixth commandment is just what not to do. It implies what to do, specifically to give thought to and to think and act charitably and gently towards others. To be peaceable and civil, to uh, protect them, not merely not murdering them. You can uh, look at the Westminster Larger Catechism for just a, a, an eloquent exposition of the role of the Ten Commandments in our life today. And this moral law, uh, God beautifully organizes what it looks like to do something that we speak uh, almost loosely about, love for others. And so uh, that's the third thing. And the fourth thing is this. The command to owe love, it's actually a byproduct of the Spirit's work in Christians. We've just just discussed how it's circumscribed by the law, but, but it's actually a byproduct of the Spirit's work in the life of a Christian. Is Paul saying that I love others by following the law? Isn't a Christian dead to the law? That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. Is he now really saying that a Christian is someone who follows the law? 
Well, Paul is not here reinstating the law as if the law now functions as it once did. Do you think that the full and complete satisfaction of the law through the righteous life of Jesus Christ is meaningless to the Christian? The Christian is permanently and eternally clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has satisfied all of the requirements of the law. To be a Christian is to stand before God already clothed by the perfection of Jesus Christ so that before the sight of God we are righteous Not because of our righteousness, but his righteousness. Paul is not teaching us that the law is a means of salvation. When Paul says in verse 10 that love is the fulfilling of the law, I believe he's actually quoting himself. It's just our memory is a little slight. And when he says that love is the fulfilling of the law, he's quoting himself from Romans 8 verses 3 and 4. You should write that down. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. In this passage, Paul defines what it means by fulfilling the law. Listen to what he says. He says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And Paul here is not uh, talking about the, the law as if the law is something that converts us. He's talking about the regular walk of someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's what a Christian is. Their heart has been regenerated. They are a new creation. And so listen again to what God graciously does. He indwells us by his Holy Spirit so that we might become that new creation. All of the demands of the law that would serve to condemn us have been satisfied in Jesus Christ. And yet that same spirit that has made us a new creation now guides us in our Christian walk so that we know how to love others and are enabled to do so more and more. Now, this, is, this is where Paul's taking us next. Having told us that the Christian's obligation is to love others by following the moral law, he now tells us to walk properly before God. This is what he does in uh, verse 11. But you can see this language in verse 13, this language of uh, walking. It's almost as if uh, Paul rouses Christians to action. This is why, as I was thinking about an illustration for our little theologians, uh, this uh, sleepiness is right here in the passage. Uh, He says in verse 11, The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. As you can imagine, this expression has caused a, a bit of stir in the history of theology because some believe that Paul is here teaching that the second coming is right around the bend. It's coming any moment even within the generation of the Christians uh, here in Rome. But I don't believe that it's necessary for us to read that in Paul's phrase. You know, in chapter 15, Paul is going to make an argument for uh, planning because he has an intention of making Rome his new base of operations so that he might then go off to uh, Spain and to do ministry there. He doesn't seem to be teaching here then that the second coming is going to happen next Wednesday. There are times when Paul will speak about the coming of Jesus as if it's at hand at any moment. You can look at 1 Thessalonians 4, and he seems to, he seems to do that often. The second coming, it's right around the bend. 
But I rather agree with Augustine who thinks that Paul here is rousing us. He's using this language and this imagery as if he's saying to us that every day brings us nearer to the return of Jesus. Though we don't know when that will be. He seems to be bringing to mind the steward who should uh, avoid sleeping at all costs because the master, he's going to be home at any moment. Luke chapter 16. Now this makes perfect sense with the imagery of debt. Consider our obligation to pay love towards others. And what does Paul say here beginning in verse 11? Let's get moving. Let's get moving. Next, what's so interesting about Paul uh, jolting us with a cattle prod is what he tells us to do. Everything that he says has to do with personal holiness. He says that there is a casting off. Let us cast off. And he says that there's a putting on. Let us put on. And I I want to examine these separately, but I want you to just pause and take in this image of someone who is sleeping. They're in their pajamas and they're cattle prodded awake by Paul. And he says, get up. And, and what he tells them to do is something that's a, that's a little bit hazy. Love others. And I wonder, loving others, I, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Love others. And, and yet he continues to, to uh, prod us and to uh, wake us up. Have you ever overslept before? You have to jump out of bed. Have you ever overslept for an important meeting? Now you have to jump out of bed and you have to dress appropriately for that meeting. We all know, know what this feels like. But oftentimes we, uh, we don't think of Christian holiness as quick, fast. And maybe I'm just uh, speaking as a Presbyterian, but uh, I know that we will uh, oftentimes think about our holiness as something that's very progressive. We do believe in progressive sanctification, but oftentimes when we use the word progressive, what we really mean is very slow. <laughs> it happens over time, day by day. And that's good theology, It is progressive. But look what Paul is doing. Get up. The time is now. And then the things that he tells them to do uh, are remarkable. Uh, He says, uh, these things need to be cast off very quickly, like uh, removing your pajamas. What am I casting off, Paul? Tell me. My eyes are bleary. I hardly know what to do today. I know generically that I'm supposed to love others. And Paul says, get those pajamas off. He says, these are the things you take off. Anything that's done at night under the cover of darkness. You know, Paul actually likes this expression. The things that are done in the darkness are things that you hide. Things that are associated with guilt and shame. And he does this again in Ephesians 5. But but he actually explains what he's talking about. Those things of the darkness, those things that you are to cast off like uh, uh, pajamas. Uh, He says uh, orgies, which is a reference to carousing or uh, excessive feasting and reverie. And this often would include drunkenness, and that's what he says next. Uh, Perhaps he's referring here even to uh, drinking games. And then he moves on to sexual immorality. Uh, Literally, the word that he uses refers to sexual intercourse. But then he attaches sexual immorality to sensuality, a different word, and he's probably referring to, to any and every kind of sexual excess. And then he mentions a quarreling and jealousy, and I think that's, that's pretty self-explanatory. But I want us to notice that none of these things that Paul says we are to cast off like uh, warm pajamas, none of these things are actually extraordinary. Uh, historical scholars confirm over and over again that the things that Paul cites are exactly the kinds of things that would be a part of regular Roman life. In fact, uh, he merely says in verse 14, make no provision for the flesh. He's just capturing those things that he's already stated. 
John Calvin just summarizes these three things by saying uh, they, are, they are excess in living, sexual indulgence, and envy. There you go. Those are the things that need to be cast off. And now we begin to think, now what can I do in a hurry? Can I love others in a hurry? I'm not sure if I can love others in a hurry. Can I cast off in a hurry? And we're actually told to cast off in a hurry. The time is now. If these are the kinds of things that uh, uh, are a part of your life, the cattle prod goes right to your side and Paul wakes you up. And Paul wakes me up. Well, what needs to be put on? Perhaps a lot can be said about this phrase, uh, the armor of light. It, it has this, this feel to it. But I think, uh, really, when he says armor of light, he wants us to understand what he's stating clearly in verse 14. The Lord Jesus Christ, him we put on. Now, this is not a reference to becoming saved. It's not a putting on Jesus Christ as an act of salvation. He's addressing people who are already saved. We do not have to, have to have in our lives a string of conversions all through our life. This here is a reference to a, a disciplined walk. It's a walk of holiness. And Paul uses shorthand by saying, we put on our Lord Jesus Christ. And Martin Luther, uh, he looks at this phrase and, and he says, really, this phrase means just two things. Martin Luther at times could be so uh, winsomely uh, simple. He says, putting on Christ means we dress ourselves in his virtues and we follow his example and pattern. We dress ourselves in his virtues and we follow his example and pattern. These really feel very similar to me and I, and I think they do to you as well. I think we understand what Paul means. That, that rather than being conformed to the patterns of the world, we're deliberately conforming ourselves unto Christ Jesus, who is our Lord, our King. Calvin says it this way. He says, to put on Christ means to be fortified by the power of the Spirit on every side. I think Calvin sees in that expression, armor of light, the work of the Holy Spirit. And so putting on Christ is to be fortified by the power of that Spirit. Calvin goes on to say that the soul in our Christian walk is adorned more and more. Our soul is renewed more and more. Well, I want to finish simply by entertaining a couple of ways to answer the question, how do we do this? How do we do this? The important thing is that we not miss the simplicity of Paul's imagery, the simplicity that even a little theologian or especially a little theologian would understand. Putting off and putting on is not supposed to be complex. Here are a few ways we put on Christ. We actually are watchful of ourselves. We critique ourselves. We notice those things that we would rather do in the darkness, those things that we would rather do when no one's watching. We attend to ourselves. The elders are called specifically to do this, to pay attention to the flock, but to also pay attention to themselves. But all Christians are called to do that. One way that you put on Jesus Christ is you entertain the notion that perhaps Paul is describing you in this passage. 
Another way that we put on Christ, that's attending to ourselves. Another way we put on Christ is that we uh, understand that we are not alone. Romans 12 is all, an, all about an address to the benefits that we have as being part of a church body. We have brothers and sisters alongside us who are saints like us by God's great grace. They're not there for, uh, for no meaning at all. They're there as a part of your sanctification, and you're there for a part of their sanctification. So putting on Christ is not merely attending to ourselves. Putting on Christ is realizing that we're not alone, nor should we be. Our Christian friendships, they're important. To be in community with one another is a gracious gift. They are things that we should expect in life, that we might have our brothers and sisters alongside us. And perhaps they are the ones with the cattle prod, reminding us that personal holiness has to do with loving others. There's something else. One reformer says it this way. He says that whenever Christ is preached and accepted with faith, that's when you're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, part of that is a plug for being here this morning, being a part of a worshiping body, uh, coming together and submitting together to God's word and listening to the word that's preached, feebly though it is, poorly though it may be, submitting yourself to the word that's preached. But this reformer, Johannes Brenz, is saying a little bit more that we need to be the kind of people who preach to ourselves as well. And just as I'm a steward of God's word, wanting to say only what God's word says, you are called to do that as well. You're listening to me preach, but you're also preaching to yourself. You're preaching to your spouse. You're preaching to your children, to your parents. These are three things that come to mind. Again, we ought not make this more complex than Paul seems to be hinting. We put on Christ by attending to ourselves, realizing that we're not alone, and uh, being preached to and preaching to ourselves. But don't forget this. That terminology of paying what is owed. How quick we are to be self-righteous about paying our bills on time and paying off our debts. I'm not sure we speak as often about the obligation that is owed to others, even including those who are outside the church. The Christian's obligation is to love others, and the Christian's obligation is to walk properly before our God. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we, we know that you know how to instruct us. You know how to save us, so of course you know how to instruct us. And we know that by your spirit, you are bringing to completion that which you have begun in our salvation. And we thank you for that. Soften our hearts, we pray, that we would love others and that we would walk properly before you. In Jesus' name, amen.